I'm interested in the, like the lies that people tell themselves as a matter of survival. I mean, his mother can't survive without these lies. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer Amy Parker about her book of connected stories, beasts, and children, published by Mariner Books. And we'll focus on one story in particular, The Balcony. Out on the balcony, the air was heavy and still. Darkness painted over the heat. The night clouds were a dull waiting color, not purple, not green, aching with unshed rain. The Balcony, Amy Parker, Beasts and Children, on Arts and Letters. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. I'm infuriated about the things that happen to people, but to children, you know, just and how the, the, the cycle just um, continues. Yes. Rainy mama, don't you hear me? It's looking like a storm is coming and the weather's looking nippy. Lights out, even no top. How to stay out here on the balcony? Watching the storm clouds as the wind blows in. Sounds like crazy. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer Amy Parker about one story in particular from her book of cycle stories, Beasts and Children, The Balcony, about Danny Marsh, a boy caught somewhere between liminal spaces, his mother's illness, addiction, and his longing for normalcy in a world filled with thunderstorms and locked balconies. And a lot of this book is also just about the, the ways that stories people tell themselves and one another can be either redemptive or disastrous or both. And that this, the intersection of our stories is just as powerful as the intersection with it. I don't know what to think of it. You can put me off of I want it. Now in the thick of it. I'm locked out and you're passed up. I'll just stay out here on the balcony. Sometimes I wonder, you know, how many times a day are there opportunities to perhaps lend comfort or assistance that we just miss mm -hmm. because we're wrapped up in our own suffering. When you know somebody Amy Parker spent her childhood overseas among the diplomatic corps and is ordained in Soto Zen monastic lineage. The anatomy of Amy Parker's story, The Balcony, on Arts and Letters. Amy Parker, welcome. It's a real privilege. So. I have to ask about the Soto Zen. Tell me about uh, the spiritual practices a little bit. The first story, actually, I started writing at... So Tassajara Zen Mountain Center is the oldest Buddhist Zen center, I think, in North America. And I found my way there through a series of just kind of happenstance, um, zigzaggy. And I started practicing Soto Zen. Again, I gone there just because I wanted to be in a place that 
you know, was near a hot springs and they had a work practice, whereas Esalen, which is another place with hot springs in the same, you know, radius, they charge you. So I wasn't really looking for Zen and I just found it and it had a profound effect on my worldview. And, you know, I mean, this book in part is about kind of the first of the four noble truths, which is that, you know, existence is suffering and then, you know, there's a way out of suffering. Got me spinning in my head So fast that I don't know I'm dead You kill me, kill me with your lies Straight to the back of my head You got me turning in my grave Just when I thought that I was safe I don't know, don't know to the back of my brain. The Balcony. In the lull before morning recess, Danny looked up to see his mother's head framed in the window of his fourth grade classroom door. She grimaced, peered in, pressed the mesh with her vivid painted mouth. Danny sat in the back row, but even from his distance, he could see that her cheeks were flushed. She caught Danny's eye, pointed frantically down at something out of sight, and waved. Her knotted red kerchief sat askew on her hair. Generally, she tied her head up jauntily with the bandana knot centered over the part in her hair, the knot ends as pert and symmetrical as cat ears. Her Rosie the Riveter look, she called it. The bandana's knot, clumsy and loose, had slipped sideways and was in the process of undoing itself over her left ear. Danny, heart pounding, bowed his head and wrote his name and the date on a fresh sheet of paper. Danny Bowman Marsh, September 19, 1967. Maybe if he acted like he didn't notice her, she'd go away. You left me bleeding on the ground. There's no one else I see around. I turn and turn and try to run away. But you keep holding me down. You caught me sleeping in my bed. And I was dreaming. Danny erased a problem in long division, concentrating on the pink rubber shavings, the pencil smear. He blew them away, erased again. He erased so hard, he bore a hole in the paper. He liked long division, liked imagining the numbers, entering a little house, fitting in neatly, with the remainders confined to the roof. squeaked and his mother came in, slipping a little in her high heels. She weaved between the desks. Her perfume was like a blow from a fist. Danny hunched further down in his chair, hoping that it was still early enough in the day that she hadn't let herself go wild. He dropped his pencil, bent to retrieve it, and came nose to nose with his basset hound, Orla, who gave his face a tentative lick, like she knew she was in the wrong place and needed to make an apology. He sniffed her tortilla scent and wished he could stay down there on the floor with her and never come back up. I don't like who I don't 
Children scraped chairs and clustered around her, patting the dog's head, scratching between her shoulder blades. The boys crouched and grabbed her paws, said, Shake! Come on, shake! shake. And the girls bent over her, fondled her long ears, and kissed the furrows on her forehead, cooing. Aw, she's cute. Shake! Class! Mrs. Michaels, his fourth grade teacher, wrapped her desk with a ruler. His mother teetered beside him, and the leash swayed and tautened. Orla sat like an anchor. Danny held his breath. May I help you, Mrs. Marsh? Oh, shoot. His mother laughed breathlessly. It's Bowman now. Danny's daddy and I are D-I-V-O-R-C-E-D. Danny kept his eyes down. He had not told Mrs. Michaels or anyone in the class about his daddy leaving. His Gigi said to hush on it, and to hush on his mama's friend, Nestor Roche. Ain't neither of them any good, his Gigi said. His mother popped a clasp on her pocketbook and fished out a box of Benson and Hedges. She shook one out and held it unlit between her long fingers. Her bangles clattered. She considered Mrs. Michaels with a grin and a squint. Danny sure does talk about you, his mother said. He's always going around quotating you and trying to get me to sing those rounds you teach him. I hate rounds. They get stuck in your head. It's not like you can sing them on your own. Rounds don't work if you're alone. It's dishonest, don't you think? Teaching kids songs that never end. Everything ends, doesn't it? And everybody ends up alone. So tell me, what's up with this mother? She's, she's a mess. Yes. So, I mean, later in the book you find out, and maybe I'm letting her off the hook, that she's actually, well, she's an alcoholic. Everyone in the family is. But also she's, she's very ill. A lot of her behavior is because of this undiagnosed illness that she has. But um, she's also but mean. She, yes. <laughs> like there's... Well, she's, she's in an... Um, yeah, she's in an obsessive relationship, and her son is just a, kind of an accessory. Does she have no awareness of how other people see her? One of the threads in the story is about this family and kind of the way that they try to erase what's really happening through framing their experiences with these really rigid stories that then do more damage. So it's about denial. Danny saw with horror that tears were forming at the corners of her eyes. They thickened her voice when she quavered. My dame has a lame, tame crane. My dame has a crane that is lame. Pray every day that my dame's lame, tame crane feeds and comes home again. Her voice rose from guttural to high-pitched, a crescendo like the laughter of the Wicked Witch. Around him, his classmates stared at his mother or kept their eyes firmly on their desks. His mother rubbed the back of Danny's neck in the way that he hated. Mrs. Michaels glanced at Orla, who was licking her privates with utter concentration. She looked at Danny's scarlet neck. She met his eyes. Danny looked away. Let's step outside, Mrs. Marsh, said Mrs. Michaels. She fingered her little cross. No reason for a -a tete-a-tete, teacher. I'm taking my son out of school. There's been a situation. Family. Not your concern. Danny, dig through my pocketbook and find me some matches. Mrs. Michaels looked at Danny. He shrank in his chair. His mother was close, he could tell, to flying off the handle. Right off the handle of my broomstick, baby. Danny, get me a light. She threw her pocketbook on his desk. Lipsticks clacked, loose chains jangled. A squiff of tissues poked out from the hinge. Gingerly, Danny fished for a pack of matches. If he took long enough, maybe she'd give up. You really focus on children. Why did you decide to work from, not the children's point of view, because they're generally third person, but really centering them around the children? Well, there's, I think it's Dickens. There's a line in Dickens, I think. It's David Copperfield, maybe like a hostage of fate. But just the sense, and I had it even as a child, that children are, you know, they're kind of hostages 
to their family. And that's very dark. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but that, you know, you're born into this situation and this particular cultural way of perceiving the world. And you don't know that it's not universal. Digging through his mother's purse usually excited him. The smooth metal curve of lipsticks, the scent of perfume, the slippery silk lining with the tear where bobby pins or pennies fetched up, the ring of keys, the little hairbrush and compact, the crisp money she flung loose on the bottom of the bag, sprinkled sometimes with face powder. She liked him to go through her purse for her in the evenings before she went out, and he felt furtive and grown up. But here in the classroom, the open purse seemed to him as naked and shameful as a drawer full of her panties. He bent his head over it, pretending to search. Mrs. Marsh. Bowman. Is it possible that you just returned from a festive lunch? Perhaps you need more time to think over this decision. There's coffee in the teacher's lounge. Our school nurse can show you in. I can't find any matches, Danny lied. Give me that. I have to do everything myself. His mother grabbed her purse and dropped the cigarette. It rolled on the floor between Danny's feet. He brought his shoe down on the cigarette and looked over at his teacher. Mrs. Michaels did not allow candy or chewing gum. Certainly not a cigarette. Why did his mother get to break all the rules? Because she was a witch. He ground the cigarette under his shoe. His mother smacked him. A girl in the back began to cry. We're talking with writer Amy Parker about her story, The Balcony. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and you're listening to Arts and Ladders. Let's return to our discussion with writer Amy Parker and her story, The Balcony. And so often children of parents like this are actually very good. First, they're very self-aware, but they're good at reading people, and then they're good at figuring out what they need to do to protect themselves, to protect the person in question, you know, from their own behavior. And of course, in this story, it doesn't always work. You can't always protect yourself. Leaving your replacement, sitting in the basement, looking for the answers while you're spinning the defacement, heading out the order, heading for the border, saying the same thing, same thing, sound like a tape recorder, running as the ashes fall from your When you're in a family as a child, children have very little power, you know, and agency. But their perceptions are really intense. And so, but they're also naive because they have no context in which to put anything. So that combination, it's very vivid. Are the beasts the adults? I feel that way about animals as well. So people project onto animals and children a kind of innocence. We anthropomorphize animals. We're very sentimental about animals and children, but at the same time, there's a way that we refuse to acknowledge the situation, which is that they're both very real, but we also have a responsibility of stewardship or, or caring for them. Mm-hmm. And so there's this very complicated relationship I think we have with the natural world. 
And this is one of those stories, at least from my reading, that it starts bad and it gets worse. And I found this scene in the car just really stunning. I mean, it threw me. Yeah, and this is supposed to be some indication that she's not just a delusional alcoholic narcissist, but there's something actually really physically wrong with her, with the car. She's sick? Yeah, yeah. So she's sick with something. Yeah, and she doesn't know it. And then she also is drinking. Is she drinking here in the car? He pours out her bottles. Yeah, so maybe let's... If we could, just hear a little of that scene. Danny had just fallen asleep. Danny had just about fallen asleep in the back when his mother said in a sharp voice, get up here, baby, and take the wheel. I'm driving blind. Danny scooted forward over his spill of school papers and elbowed Orla to one side. He rubbed his eyes. They were still speeding through the hill country. Heat pools shimmered. The sun was hot and the light jab-jabbed against the punching bag clouds. I can't see the road. Her voice, normally lazy Texas with an upper crust lilt, angled sharply. Danny glanced around the car's interior, looking for bottles. Had she stopped while he was asleep? He knew her flask was empty. He'd seen her finish it in the school parking lot. And there weren't any bottles as far as he could see. Take the wheel! Take the wheel, it! She was going 90. The road seared at that speed. She let go of the wheel and clutched her head. The speedometer crept to 100. Danny, terrified, leaned across the gap between the bucket seats and steered. They started to weave. She kept her hands pressed hard against her eyes, her foot flooring the accelerator as if she were trying to speed herself back into sight. Danny held the wheel in both hands, struggling to keep the car straight. The road began to curve. Mama! He let go of the wheel with one hand and struck her as hard as he could on the knee. Her foot didn't budge. The car veered into the opposite lane. He yanked them back. Up ahead in their lane, he could see a blue Chevy traveling much more slowly. The Mustang gained speed. Mama, take your foot off the gas! He leaned over and grabbed her by the shin, pulling her foot. She just pressed the gas harder. They were right on top of the Chevy. Danny hit the horn. The Chevy swerved. Danny swerved. They clipped its side mirror and kept going. Behind them, a horn blared, and he heard a man shouting. Danny was screaming. His mother was screaming. The wheel fought his grip. The car kept skidding. Danny focused on the dotted lines in the road, casting worried glances at his mother, who sank in a half-crouch, holding her eyes, and at Orla, who pressed herself forward to get close to them, terrified, one paw scraping his wrist, the other slipping on the gear shift. The road rushed under them, a grainy blur of asphalt and heat, and the terrible whipping in his ears distracted him, and he felt battered by wind and speed. Please, God, just don't let them crash. Orla leapt onto his mother's lap and then burrowed down into the footwell between her feet. Her mother kicked the dog, screaming, and Orla scrambled back up, this time onto Danny, but his mother's foot came off the accelerator and the car slowed down. Don't touch the pedals, Mama! I want to steer us off to the side! They rolled onto the shoulder, and when the car was nearly stopped, Danny pulled the handbrake. Jesus, said his mother. Jesus Christ. Gosh. And, and then, you know, again here, at least as I'm reading it, there's this confinement. Like he's in the room. He can't do anything about it. Then he yes. gets into a smaller room, which is the car. And I just can't even imagine she will not take her foot off the accelerator. And she says she can't see. 
Help me with that. Okay, well, so this is going to sound really melodramatic because she has a brain tumor, which, again, when I say it like that on top of everything else, it's like high melodrama. But it makes more sense. So this is affecting her vision and it's also affecting um, her behavior. She's rushing because she wants to get to her boyfriend. Yes. And she knows that he doesn't like at all the little boy. For yes. whatever reason, probably the reasons we imagine. Yes. And there's this sense he's not going to be there or he's going to leave. or So she's rushing to get to this hotel. The implication is that she does this frequently. She just pulls her son out of school and they go on these road trips right. to meet up with this seedy boyfriend. Um, she's slumming it with him. And, but also has convinced herself that they have a future. And so she wants to include her son and the dog. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, she's constantly shoving them to one side. I mean, I can explain that, you know, they get to a hotel where she has this assignation and the boyfriend's, they're on the phone, the boyfriend's not pleased that she's brought her son and the dog. Could we just read a little from when she's talking to the boyfriend on the phone? Yes. His mother paced inside their motel room, already on the phone, scattering ash as she poured herself some bourbon in a cloudy motel glass. I'm here, she cried. Honey bunch, I made it. She slurped her drink. I did 90 the whole way and I made it. She motioned for Danny to come in. The room was dark and cool, already filling with her smoke and perfume. His mother shut the door, bolted it, and slipped the chain. She lifted the hair off the back of her neck. What, honey? She said into the phone. Her voice pitched low, murmured, then cracked. Well, no. No, of course I brought him. I had to. She paced, eyebrows and mouth quirked tight, like she was trying to pull the conversation up with the muscles in her face. She rubbed the bridge of her nose. I wasn't lying. I just, I just couldn't leave him alone this time. You said you were serious. We're going to be a family. Danny snuck an ice cube from her glass and sucked on it. The bourbon burned, and the ice did too. He watched his mother try to force the curl out of the phone cord. I do love you. I do. Danny turned the air conditioner up higher. A thin stream of air, cold as a sharpened pencil on the tongue, blew out, smelling like dust. He wanted to ask for the room key so he could go out to the car and get his comic books, but he was afraid to interrupt her. He knew this mood. If he left the room without the key, she wouldn't answer his knocks until she hung up the phone, which wouldn't be for a long time. It was hot outside, so Danny waited. Come on, honey, I'm here. Where are you? She slapped Danny's hand away from her glass. Nothing matters but us. She covered the mouthpiece and hissed, Danny, patio, get. Danny didn't move. He still felt sweaty, and the room was cool. Orla huffed in the corner next to the air conditioner. Her eyeballs were red. Danny lay down next to the dog. The carpet made his eyes ache. His name is what, Nestor? Nestor Roche, yes. What a name. Where'd you come up with that name? It's a great name. I mean, seriously, the name fits I mean, I wanted, I wanted something that sounded, you know, like verminous. Yeah, like a roach. Yes. We're talking with writer Amy Parker about her story, The Balcony. We'll be back in a moment. Let's return to our discussion with writer Amy Parker and her story, The Balcony, from her collection, Beasts and Children. You know, sometimes something so tiny, something so coincidental, then will change your entire 
the entire path of your life. And so the ways that people intersect is one of the things I was exploring in this book. You know, how is it that some people become important to us and others that we may love even more desperately or deeply vanish? So we meet Orla. Yes. And in in many of these stories are relationships with animals. So poor Orla is even worse off than Danny because she's at the whim of everybody, including Danny. Yes. Well, I mean, there's so a phrase. So is there like, like a hierarchy of... Again, you see this in social relationships, right? Like in power dynamics. Distress and abuse gets kicked down the chain, right? So the most powerful person harms the next and down. No. Yeah, so even lower in the hierarchy than children are pets. Although, again, it depends, right? Some people treat their pets really well. Yeah, she's a casualty of this situation. That's intense, Amy. You know, it pulls up. I mean, the ending is trying to be somewhat hopeful. But, yeah, in the beginning, the stories are... Hopeful for the dog, but... And we'll get there, but not so hopeful for Danny. Right. You sure do smell. He said to her. What? To a dog, that's a compliment. You are so stinky. Stinky as a pile of poop. She licked her chops and rolled to one side, showing her belly. Danny, get! His mother goosed him in the backside with her big toe. She had on her fierce face. She'd reapplied her lipstick and was looking in the mirror, scrubbing a forefinger along her front tooth. Patio, now! If he didn't move now, she would kick. Barefoot or not, she could land a good one. He got up on all fours and crawled toward the sliding glass doors to the balcony, panting like a dog. He won't be a problem, I promise. He won't make a peep. You won't even see him, honey bunch. I swear. I swear. Danny, patio, now. Can I at least go swim in the pool? Not while there's lightning. It's not even raining yet. Get! She shoved him onto the patio and heaved the sliding door. A moment later, she opened it again and scooted Orla out. The drapes hitched. He heard the latch click. That's the the balcony moment. I yes. Mean. So he's in the classroom. He can at least get out of there. He's in the car. Now he's locked. And he's There's stuck. nowhere to go because they're on There's... the second floor. And in each scene, I, there's there are moments when you would hope that an, another adult could protect him, and of course, they can't. So he's stuck with the dog. Below there's the pool. It starts to rain, right? Yeah, one of those big Texas thunderstorms. Right. They're just intense. And the only thing he cares about beside the dog, and he loves his mother, but the only thing he really is his comic books, which are stuck in the car, which are ruined. Because it's a convertible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Out on the balcony, the air was heavy and still. Darkness painted over the heat. 
The night clouds were a dull waiting color, not purple, not green, aching with unshed rain. Orla panted and drooled against his ankle. His shirt stuck to his back, clammy under the arms. Voices from the television inside the room sounded so certain of themselves, so pleased. They made the studio audience erupt in laughter, and he hated them. Roche's boots thumped one after another onto the carpet. Jesus Christ, Loretta, you brought the dog too? His mother laughed. Danny hated her. Danny woke from a doze. Below him, the unlit pool was a small, dingy rectangle, but the water looked cool. He was so thirsty. He watched the spit drip from Orla's tongue. He thought longingly of his comic books, of the bottles of Coke in the car, likely warm now from hours in the open. He leaned out over the railing and, yes, tried to see his pile of comic books in the bright, open Mustang, Scrooge McDuck and Mighty Mouse, slipping out from underneath his backpack. He'd never wanted anything so much as he wanted a swig of Coke and to fold back the slick cover of one of those comic books. But it was too dark to read. The wind picked up. The air before the rain pressed him like palms on each side of his head, and he wanted to cry, but couldn't. He tried the sliding door again. He sat on the plastic chair. He put his feet up on the railing. He got down and knelt by Orla. He wrapped his hands in her floppy ears, and they felt good, warm, and alive. Orla? Shake, girl, shake! She sighed. Shake! The dog growled in a complaining way. My mother is selfish. The thought, detached and clear, floated forward. My mother is selfish. The thought was very quiet, and his authority was absolute. He sat up and shoved Orla's head from his leg. The loneliness, like the heat, pressed down on him, crept inside him, and stuck his tongue to the roof of his mouth. He wanted to drink a water. He wanted to be in an icy room on a cheap bedspread beside his mother, glugging down a glass of tap water, even if it tasted rusty, even if it wasn't cold, and watching anything on the motel television, even the news. The grimy glass was locked against him, and it was too far to jump from the balcony into the pool. Orla grunted and resettled herself dinosaur-like, her neck stretched long on the grimy patio. A squeak of the pool gate startled Danny. He looked down to see a hippie man and woman padding barefoot to the pool. The man flicked on the underwater lights and the pool glowed like a mysterious heart. Danny smelled warm chlorine and something indefinable, a thundery smell that came from the sky. thirsty and tell me about the water imagery there's a lot of water imagery here I, I realized that I have a lot of thunderstorms in this book I mean mm -hmm. I think writers just have certain things that they return to again and again and for me there's something about the heaviness before a big thunderstorm and the way that it can be cathartic or terrifying did you grow up in Texas uh, I spent some time in Texas yeah. but I've grown up in other places that had you know typhoons right. and I lived in Texas, and I know those Yes, and there's something spectacular and terrifying about how suddenly the weather can shift. And so there's an, uh, kind of a, an emotional parallel. And then the whole just thirst, right? I mean, thirst is very painful. And there's physical thirst, and then there's, you know, the other human thirsts that we have. And to be able to see something so close, that's, but to not be able to receive its benefit. And also water is beautiful and you know, it reflects light. The woman wore a white gauze dress, and she jumped straight in. The pool lights turned her magnesium blue, a dazzle of floating dress and limbs. The dress stuck to her when she came up. She bounded over to the man, who dangled his legs over the ladder and grabbed him by the waistband of his pants and dragged him into the water. Thunder. Raindrops pecked the surface of the water. The sky opened and a sudden burst of rain fell as hard and fast as a split bag of rice. They pulled themselves out of the pool and ran, goosing and giggling, for the stairs. 
The rain swept sideways onto the balcony. It was warm and felt good at first, but it rained harder, and Orla's fur turned dark with wet, and the wind blew grit into his teeth and soaked his sneakers and puddled in the pits of the unevenly poured cement. Goosebumps twinkled on Danny's skin. Orla whined and backed under the table. Down in the parking lot, their open car became a bucket, and he knew his comic books were ruined. Everything was ruined, and he was chilled and wet, and still, in spite of all the rain, so thirsty. He tried to crawl under the table next to Orla, but he didn't fit. Inside the room behind him, he heard his mother weeping and the sound of a terrible knocking over and over. The rain sounded like a John Wayne movie. Mounted cavalry storming a hill, gunfire, Indian whoops. Danny tried the sliding door. He banged it. He kicked the door, but the flapping rubber sole of his sneaker only smeared the glass. He pressed his face against the door, and something flew toward his eyes and struck. He fell back, startled, staring at the crack that zigzagged down the door like captured lightning. His mother's shoe, the heel broken, lay on the carpet between the curtain and the glass. The knocking inside the room continued. Wow, such a moment where we kind of sense the mother is captive too. Yes. Right. And he's trying to help her, right? He, hears, he thinks she's crying. And so he he tries to get in to help her still. Yeah, and I think he wants to protect her. And the bit with the shoe just seems like such a the epitome of the mother here. She's <laughs> she's a broken shoe. Yes. Kind of. The woman came back out onto her balcony wrapped in a towel. She leaned over the railing and lit a cigarette. You've been out there the whole time? She called. Little Dickens. Wind blew water off the trees in a spattering gust. Danny gave a big theatrical shrug. He suddenly felt very happy. You should go inside. Didn't anyone teach you not to stare? He shook his head wildly. I like your dog. What's her name? Orla! The woman smiled again and dragged on her cigarette. She looked so beautiful in her white towel with her glowing cigarette. Danny bent over and grabbed Orla. He felt hectic with his need to show off, to show the woman something special, to make her laugh and shake her head and readjust the towel and wave at him. He grabbed Orla around her fat middle and hoisted her high over his head. She slipped in his grip, but he held her under the armpits and hefted her so that her paws finally balanced on the balcony railing. Tightrope walker! Tightrope walker! Orla scrabbled desperately, clawing at his chest. The woman leaned forward in alarm. She waved, a wave that meant no. But Danny, completely carried away, grabbed Orla's front paw and waved with it again. Orla struggled backwards, digging her claws into him. She was surprisingly heavy and strong. Come on, girl, wave! Orla blocked his view of the lady. He could only hope she was charmed and waving back wildly. Orla's torpedo body twisted in his grip. He squeezed her harder and she yelped sharply, then jackknifed out over the balcony rail. The woman screamed. Ah! Orla fell. Danny watched the slash of her tail, the sweet sail of ears as her stubby legs rode empty space. Then she smashed into the pool and sank. Jesus Christ! Danny squeezed the railing, looking down, watching Orla spiral against the pool lights in the deep end. His chest was covered in dog hair. Orla shed furiously when she was scared. The scratches on his arms hurt. Franklin, that kid just threw his dog into the pool. The perspectives here are really clearly seen. Yeah. So he he's flirting with her. He's trying to show off. It's innocent. Yes. And he's trying to get the dog to wave, and he's just trying to say, hey. But what she sees is a little boy throwing the dog over the railing. Right, and suddenly he becomes this vicious person in her mind. Because who, who would Who would ever? do that. Yes. So there's intentionality from her perspective. Yes. And from his, the intent is just to say, hey. Yes. And he, may, you know, he makes a stupid, dumb choice. But kids do stupid. We all do. You think something's adorable, and then it's yeah. often a mistake. Every time I see a face, I 
Danny couldn't do anything but grip the railing and look down into the pool where Orla was drowning. Her nose slipped under, and her rattling barks when she coughed up water filled him with shame. Orla panted, spun in circles, looking for a way out. She paddled the water with stumpy legs. Her ears floated wide. Do something! And she um, thinks he can just run down. Yeah. What we think we see is not always what we see because we don't see the whole thing. Yeah, and I think most people are trying their best to see the whole to thing. see clearly, and we sometimes we just get it so yeah so wrong because we don't quite see enough. Okay, so the woman goes down and she hauls the dog out of the pool and she takes her back to their motel room. Right, so the woman goes down and she rescues the dog that's drowning. Yes, right, because basset hounds, they're not good swimmers. Good swimmers. No, and she looks up at him and she decides, at that moment at least, she's not letting a little kid near that dog Yes. again. And she draws the drapes and the dog is now locked inside their motel room. At dawn... He watched Nestor Roche cross the pool deck and let himself out by the gate. When Danny's voice came, it was a croak. Mr. Roche! The morning was so still, he knew the man heard him. But Roche did not pause or look up. Orla! Danny said. Those people took her to the room. Please let me out. Mama doesn't hear me knocking. The hippie couple crept across the parking lot, trying to move as noiselessly as possible. The girl had tied a bright purple belt to Orla's collar. Roche nodded to them. He hunkered down and patted Orla. Nice dog you folks have. Got a puss on her like LBJ. No, that's Orla! Tell them! Roche slid into his truck and started. His headlights flooded the balcony. Danny threw an arm against his eyes and missed the moment when Libby hoisted Orla into the back of the VW bug. But he heard the car door slam. He heard them drive away. Yeah, so the three terrifying moments here. One, he's been on the balcony all All night. night. All night. I mean, they, they treat him like a dog. Yes. Worse than a dog. One. Two, Nestor may be horrible, but he's seemingly pretty bright. He must have figured out that the dog flew over the bow. Yes, right. And, but knows it's absolutely the dog because he says, right. as a puss. Right. And then the little boy recognizes that. Wow. And then people just driving away. Five hours later, Libby sat up groggily in the backseat of the bug, rubbed the drool from her cheek, and said, Jesus, Franklin, that kid. Franklin reached over and scratched the basset hound behind the ears. The dog licked his hand. I know. Dude was unglued. But the dog seems okay. He was still out there on the balcony. Frank looked at Libby in the rearview mirror, and their eyes met. Oh, God, Franklin, I think we really messed up. She figured it out. Yeah. decide to change perspectives to the woman in the car um because sometimes that happens right you think something's one way and then you have a little time and suddenly it comes to you that you put together what you saw in a completely different way and realize sometimes with horror that you've made a terrible mistake it's uh that's a redeeming moment yeah these aren't bad people i mean beyond the dog i mean they didn't do the wrong thing but she made a mistake that's the difference. She didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And, and she, she figures it out. 
She shouldn't yeah. have saved the dog. She should have saved the kid. Yes. On the road to El Paso, Danny's mother spotted a Mexican man at a roadside stand. He was trying to sell a monkey. She bought it for Danny, along with a supply of disposable diapers and a half bunch of bananas. Then they turned west. And th that's my question too, like how, how can we save people? Is it possible? Sometimes it's not. So then what should we be teaching children how to do when we can't save them? How do you teach someone to survive. Pretty mama, don't you hear me? It's looking like a storm is coming and the weather's looking nippy. Lights out, even no top. How's it stay out here on the balcony? Watching the storm clouds has the Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Leave us a comment there and let us know what you thought about the program. A special thanks to composer, musician, and songwriter Joseph Fuller for the amazing soundscapes with help from performers Michael Fuller, Jessica Fuller, Tommy Priakos, Reed Mitchell, Jeff White, Phil Houston, and Drew DeFrance. How's it stay out here on the balcony? Thank you to our voice actors. Emily Lane Smith, Joseph Fuller, Rowan Wells, Paige Wells, Logan Wells, Drew DeFrance, Jenny Mitchell, and Adam Simon. A special thanks to Michael Fuller. Thank you to Adam Simon of Simon Sound for the sound effects and helping to mix and for mastering the program. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Check for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to writer Amy Parker for so carefully and consciously taking us into the world of illness and neglect. We're praying for all the Dannys and Orlas who are hidden away and alone on balconies that we can't see or can't get to. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed the words of Shirley Jackson. To learn what we fear is to learn who we are.